went to the youth pastor to have a Star Wars themed uh, in a message service. Uh, sorry, it's just kind of in me. It kind of seeps out every once in a while. Uh, today I want to talk about a hot button issue uh, that the American church is facing. And uh, it, it's one of those issues that has caused pastors to, uh, to quit. It's caused pastors to get fired, which I'm hoping is not the case for me after today. Um, it's caused churches to split to split, uh, members to be run off, and, uh, and it ultimately has eroded the intention and desire that God has for his church. I'm talking about this term that we might have heard called worship wars. Ever since uh, the first song was written, you've had music, and music has changed over the years. Over the centuries, music has changed, and with that change has come a lot of resistance. Uh, in the first century church, uh, if you go back and, and study about what the first century church was singing, they were actually singing uh, the Psalms. In fact, if you took the Bible, uh, the Old Testament would have been their hymn book because they were singing straight out of Psalms. And then you have uh, the ninth century. And in the ninth century, you have uh, Gregorian chants. I, I didn't know if you knew what that was, so I want you to hear what a Gregorian chant sounds like. Pretty, pretty wild stuff, huh? It uh, sounds real like Catholic or something, but that's what the church worshipped with in the ninth century. Uh, they actually would sing this in Latin or Italian, and, uh, and it would be sung just theology about God or the Psalms was Gregorian chants. And then the 16th through 18th century, you had the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther comes out uh, and begins to write a lot of music that we sing in our hymnal. It's part of the hymnal that many of us grew up singing out of. Martin Luther comes, he, sing, he uh, wrote a song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The Wesley Brothers follow. They write great stuff. Uh, John Newton, we sang Amazing Grace just a minute ago. Isaac Watts. Many different people come out. Out, and they began to put together, uh, they didn't realize they were putting this together, but they began to write songs that we sang growing up uh, in church out of this hymnal. In fact, this is the hymnal that our church uh, had over in the, in the other building for a long time. But then something happened. And by the way, every time these changes occurred, there was really strong resistance. In fact, when Martin Luther uh, wrote that stuff, you can imagine he was already on the hit list for, uh, for the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but man, these guys, they were under severe resistance. And the Gregorian chants the same one. But then in the 1970s, uh, comes along a man named Bill Gaither. And Bill Gaither begins to write music. In fact, two weeks ago, we sang one of his songs, Because He Lives. What a great song that is. In fact, that song is now in the hymnal as well. But, and, and most of you in this room might remember this. I know your parents would remember this. Even you older folks, if your parents were here with us today, uh, and grandparents, they would definitely remember this. But in the 1970s, when Bill Gaither wrote songs like Because He Lives, He Touched Me, do you realize the opposition that he came under for those songs? In fact, I was reading, researching this. I don't have time to give you the whole quote, but there were people that were actually calling Bill Gaither's music apost apostasy. They were saying he was a heretic and that that music was just not, should be not, not be sung in church. 
And so these are the worship wars that the, that the church has faced for years. But the thing is, these wars are not just something that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is something that we're dealing with even right here, right now in our city. And for these generations in this room this morning, the worship wars really began in the 1990s when Australia invaded America. And I know you're like, well, that's not in the history books. It is. A group called Hillsong comes out of Australia, and they begin writing what's known as praise songs. Songs that were not in the traditional hymnal. Now, we had Christian songs before then, okay? We had Christian songs before then. They were sung on the radio. But never before had they written songs out of the hymnal that the churches would begin to sing congregationally, these praise songs. And so you have this time in history in the 90s, and I remember when our church was, was going through this, but all the churches were going through this. They, a lot of churches were going through this identity crisis of, okay, what are we as a church? Are we going to, to sing traditional music and stay with that? Are we going to sing contemporary music, or are we going to have some kind of blend of the two? And churches all over America went through this. Even our church went through a lot of change since the 90s. I mean, if you guys have been here long, I've been here since I was eight years old, so I've seen a lot of these changes occur. Man, we have went through so many different changes as a church. And although I believe, and, and we can debate this, but I believe that our leadership here at this church, even before I was on staff, uh, I believe our leadership, the, the pastors and the deacons, uh, didn't just do this to keep up with the Joneses or to keep up with the church down the street. I believe these decisions were, were born out of prayer, were born out of discernment and affirmation of the body. But this is where we've been as a church. And whether or not uh, you've been affected by this church, maybe you're just now coming to this church and you haven't been here long. But the fact is we all have dealt on a personal level with this idea of worship wars. And so uh, as we get into today, I want you to, if you have your Bible, uh, to go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, we've been walking through uh, a series called Royal Invitation on Sunday mornings, the book of Romans. It's been an incredible study. I, I'm just going to tell you, I know some of you guys are doing this, uh, and I'm able to do this. Connect groups are doing this where you're able to go and uh, just study, really just dissect that passage each week, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout your quiet time. It's been incredible. Uh, this morning, our pastor, uh, my dad, is actually in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. He's preaching at our old church. He's preaching their homecoming this morning. So definitely be in prayer for him. Uh, but he's there in Wilmington. And so this morning, I kind of wanted to change gears. He wanted to see, he said, you know, if you want Romans 4, you can take it. And I said, I'll leave that to you. So we'll get to have that back next week. But this morning, we're going to do something a little different. And we're not uh, doing necessarily uh, the in the Romans passage. Uh, but you have an outline there. I hope you'll take it. Uh, maybe study it this week uh, like you might have been doing with Romans. Uh, there's a lot of verses there to look at and just kind of maybe... Uh, allow the Lord to speak to you in your quiet time about what this looks like. But John chapter 4. If you look at your introduction uh, on your uh, outline there, look at what it says. Real worship wars are not waged between the traditional and the contemporary, but between the worthless and the worthy. Tradi worship wars are not waged between the traditional and the contemporary, but between the worthless and the worthy. The deception that the enemy would have us believe is that our issue is with that contemporary atmosphere. 
or that our issue is with that traditional song that we continue to sing. That's what the enemy would have us believe, is that the issue are these songs that we choose, or the issue is this atmosphere that we've created. But here's the deal in that. that are, those things are symptoms of a deeper issue, that the issue's not with traditional versus contemporary. The issue is with what is considered worthy worship and what is considered worthless worship. This is where our heart is. So the goal today, and I know some of you are sweating right now. I'm sweating a little bit. Uh, The goal today is not to defend a certain preference. That's not the goal today. It's not to have an agenda or politic for a certain side of this debate. Uh, I know you're sick of politics. I'm quite sick of politics as well. So the goal is not to have six days of the week uh, in the news watching politics play out and then get to church on Sunday and hear more politics and more agendas. That's not the point this morning. The point is to look at our heart and to say, look deep at the source of where these wars in our heart truly occur between the worthless and the worthy. So if you have your outline there, look at the first thing there on your outline. Worthless worship centers around a style. Worthless worship centers around a style. If you look in John 4, uh, you have this famous uh, scene where Jesus is there with the woman at the well. And uh, he's basically just airing out her dirty laundry. You know, I mean, he's, he's kind of saying, you know, you've had this many husbands. And, and uh, just basically speaking a lot of truth to this woman. And uh, I love what, how she responds to that. Look at what she says in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, why did she think that? She thought that because he knew all this stuff about her. And he had never met her before. So he, she says this, and then, verse 20, it seems like she changes the subject. And, you know, there's, there's reasons why people think that. Some people think, hey, she really wanted to know uh, what this worship thing was all about. Other people believe she's trying to redirect him. It's like, okay, I'm tired of talking about all my dirty laundry. Let's move over here to this subject. But either way, she implies this question in verse 20. Look at what it says. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, she's saying, he said, he didn't just say that to her. He's a Jew. And so here was what the big worship war was uh, in first century during Jesus' time. It wasn't a style as much as it was a place. The Samaritans uh, were a group of people and the Jews were a group of people. And they really hated one another. It was talk about racism. This was a racism uh, situation. And the Samaritans uh, believed that you worship at Mount Gerizim. Okay, that was where they thought you worshiped. The Jews said, no, it's Jerusalem. And so you had these two groups of people, and they were completely diametrically opposed. One said Gerizim, and they had good reason for why they said that. The Jews had really good reason for why they said that. And we can't get into why they thought the two places. But these were the two places that they thought. And so she's posing this question of, hey, where is it that we're supposed to worship? Okay? And again, this could be a sidetracked issue, uh, trying to get Jesus sidetracked. But Jesus does a great job answering that question. Now, we listen to this, and we think to ourselves, that's silly. I mean, isn't that silly? I mean, why does it matter where we are 
when we worship. We're under a new covenant. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We realize that the temple is no longer in Jerusalem. The temple's sitting right here, if you're a believer in this room. It's right there. I'm looking at a lot of temples right now. The temple of the Lord is this body. And so we know it doesn't matter if we're in this building. This is not a temple. This is just a building where people are meeting or if we're under the oak tree out there. That worship can occur anywhere. We could be driving down the road and be worshiping God. And so we look at this issue of place of worship and we think that's a silly thing to argue about. That is a silly thing to war over. And I want to kind of put this in light, okay? I want to put this in light because obviously in that time and and period, you didn't really have uh, a lot of the things that we have today uh, in regards to this issue of style. But I want us to think about our arguments for how we should worship. There are worthy arguments there. But a lot of our arguments and a lot of the things I've heard in, on Facebook and different places are really worthless in nature. And the reason why they're worthless is because the argument centers around a style. A certain style that we're trying to propagate. And so what determines a style? What makes up a style on Sunday morning? Well, I've got some things here that make up a style. One of the things that makes up a style are songs. That's the obvious one. And the the deal with that and what what most people uh, struggle with, not most, but a lot of people struggle with is the difference between a a hymn versus a worship song or a hymn versus a praise song. Should we be doing these traditional songs or should we just forsake that and do worship songs? Should we not go in with the culture and do worship songs or should we stay traditional? And this is a big debate in a lot of different churches. Now, let me say this as we get started. This church uh, is not, uh, there are very few churches that this message could be preached at without people throwing tomatoes at the pastor, okay? So let me just say this now. This church, man, is incredible with how we move together, being led by the Spirit and being led by the leadership of this church. So it's, this is not a, a, like you guys are doing terrible with this. Man, we're, we've come a long ways. But this is a big issue for a lot of people in our community, and it might be an issue in your heart today. Songs. What's the other things we see that make up a style? Instruments make up a style. Piano and organ versus guitar and drums. I mean, do we realize that there are churches out there right now, and maybe you even think this, that believe that this piece of equipment right here is satanic in nature? And that what Jason does with this every Sunday morning is a bad thing. That that beat in a song is a satanic thing. It's not something that we should be doing. There's people that go that far. Then there's other people that say, well, it's just not really something that I prefer. Okay, But we have these two sides of style that you see warring a lot in other churches Okay, and in our community. Not just uh, instruments, but also volume. This is always a hot-button issue. It's, so, it's, it's, it's soft, and, and people that like soft volume, they, they are the people they do. They like to hear themselves sing. They want to hear themselves. They want to hear some people around them singing, and uh, they, they don't want to hear too much instrument. They want to hear more vocals, and, uh, and these folks, you know, nothing wrong with that, nothing right or wrong with that. That's, that's a preference that they have versus loud. Loud people that want loud worship, they don't want to hear themselves sing. They know how bad they are, and they definitely don't want to hear the person beside them singing, and so they like it loud. But then this is really where we're at, okay? It's not soft versus loud. It's really versus just right. 
Because no one really wants it soft and no one really wants it loud. What they really want is just right. Now, what's the problem with just right? The problem with just right is just right for Miss Joy might be a little different than just right for Mr. Carl. And guess what? They're married, okay? You, you cannot find two people that will agree perfectly on every atmospheric condition. The temperature right now. I, I'm pretty much burning up right now. I know some of you have a jacket on right now, okay? The volume is a lot like the temperature. Now, let me just put a disclaimer in here. We actually have a decibel counter back there, and we watch that and monitor that to make sure that there is no sound coming out of our speakers that will permanently damage ears. So it's never at that level, okay? We do watch that. It's sitting, I see it sitting right there, okay? We do watch that. But people have their preferences when it comes to volume. Not just volume, lighting. Some people like the lights off during worship. They even like the lights off during the message because they, they're, they're thinking, and that is, they want to focus in on what's going on. They don't want to focus in on people around them with the lights being down. It kind of discourages conversation and talking, and they just want to focus in on, on what, they're, what they're doing, focusing in on Christ. And that's, that's a valid argument, okay? But the, the ones that light the lights on, they have a, just as equally vi- valid argument, right? They want to see what's going on. This is fellowship, right? I want to see the people that stay sitting around me. I want to be able to go to the bathroom and not trip over my feet getting there. You know, a lot of us don't do the tech thing, and so our Bibles are sitting right here. I want to be able to see my Bible while he's preaching. And so lighting comes into this. It's not a right or wrong. It's a preference. It's a style. And then you have atmosphere, formal versus casual. Some of you guys grew up, and and really, honestly, I kind of grew up like this. I I changed a little bit, but we kind of grew up with this mindset of, you know, we wear our best to church on Sunday mornings for Jesus, you know? And and so, and Easter, you wear your super, super best, right? I mean, it's like super suit and tie, the nicest dress you have, and that's kind of how we grew up in church, and that's that's a great a great way to, to think. There's, there's also this other way of thinking of casual of, you know, there's people coming in. Uh, there's people coming in from all different walks of life and diversities, and, and we want them to feel comfortable. We don't want everyone dressed in a suit and tie because we don't want that person, that guest, to feel uncomfortable. And so you have these two arguments of saying, you know, hey, one's, you know, about, you know, the dress is a good thing. Others saying, no, nah, it's not really that important. But you have these different styles. And here's the thing about style. There's, valid, there's validity and some of that stuff, but the truth is a style has really been the thing that has divided churches, this idea of style. And the fact of the matter is when it comes to worship, it is a worthless fight. It's a worthless fight. So what's a worthy fight? What does worthy worship look like? Worthless worship centers around a style. Worthy worship centers around a savior. It centers around a Savior. Look at what Jesus says uh, in John there uh, in verse 21. So she poses this question, where, where do we worship? And look at what he says to her. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's a reference saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm from the lineage of the Jewish people. That's what he's saying there. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Skip to verse 25. We're coming back to 23 and 24. 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus drops this incredible truth right there into her, right there into her heart. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now you can imagine this moment. You've been talking to this guy that's a perceived prophet, and all of a sudden he says to her, this Messiah you've been waiting for, I'm the guy. And we know the story. She goes back, she gets people, they come to the well, they meet Jesus. It's a big deal. And they have worship right there. And here's the deal. It didn't matter at that point whether they were on Mount Gerizim or whether they were in Jerusalem. They were at a dingy well with the Savior, and they were worshiping. At that point, it didn't matter. When we catch a glimpse of who Christ is, our preferences and styles don't matter so much anymore. And look at this Savior who we're, who we're centering our worship around. Look at these points here. A Savior that makes us godly. A Savior that makes us godly. If, if you go into the Psalms and you look at uh, Psalms, it's an incredible book to study on worship. Uh, even I know some people read a Psalm a day. That's an incredible thing to think about doing. Um, because Psalms are rich with showing us what worship looks like and this, this Savior that we get to worship. But this is, this is the Savior that we worship, Savior that makes us holy. Psalm 33, 1 says this, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the righteous. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about people that have been made righteous by God. We don't make ourselves righteous. We all know that. We've heard that since we were young. It's God who makes us righteous. It is because we have been made godly. It's because we have been made righteous that we have a reason to sing. Remember the songs that you sang when you first got saved? Do you remember those songs? Some, for some of you, maybe that happened last week. And so the songs we're singing now, man, those are the songs you, you, you know and you've remembered. Man, there's something special about that era right when you got saved, isn't there? I remember the song... Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. We used to sing that every single Sunday morning, right after church at Longleaf Baptist in Wilmington. Right around the time, as a seven-year-old, right when I got saved, I loved that song. I still love that song. And every time I hear it, every time I hear it, I'm reminded of what God did way back here. I'm reminded of the day where he made a seven-year-old boy righteous in his sight. That's incredible to think about. And so that's why older songs are important. That's why hymns are important. Because many of us, we connect that song to that moment where Jesus saved us. And when we're singing that to him, it really is a memorial to what he's done in the past for us. That's an incredible thing to think about. But it's not just a Savior that makes us godly. It's a Savior that manifests new grace. A Savior that manifests new grace. Psalm 96, 1 through 2 says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, now look at this. Sing to the Lord a new song. That is an imperative that we sing new songs to God. Not just old songs. New songs to God. 
In Scripture, the word new, I didn't know this. I actually was studying this and saw this. In Scripture, the word new is used more frequently in relation to a song than any other feature of salvation. New songs reference the new ways God manifests his grace from day to day. That's what we see in that passage. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, this is why new songs are important. This is why new songs are important, because not, God not only did something way back here when we got saved, okay, when old victory in Jesus was popular, God did something this week in the seven-year-old's life that's now 34. He's continuing to do new things. So when we sing a song like we just sang, a brand new song, Mountain, okay, down in the valley, or up on the mountain, I will be lifting my voice down in the valley. I will be dancing for joy. In every season, you are, uh, what is, I can't remember. You are worthy in every moment. You're wonderful. When I'm singing that, man, that song has meaning to me in that moment. I've been burdened this week, guys. I, I'll just tell you, I, I, have, a, I have a student right now, uh, a previous student. They've moved up to Massachusetts, Marky Boris and his, his brother, Brandon, and I've been broken about what I've been hearing and, and talking to Maggie this weekend um, and literally just sitting. There's this room I like to sit in and pray and study and all that stuff. Literally sitting in this room in my house and just being heartbroken over what that family's going through right now. And just tore apart and, and really, you know, not questioning God, but just, just struggling. Of uh, God, I know you're up to something, but I don't know what. And so when I get to come here on Sunday morning, and some of you are dealing with the same kind of stuff. When you get to come here and you're, you're sitting there, you're standing there and you're singing that phrase, in every season you are worthy, in every moment you're wonderful. Man, that, is, that does something. That reminds us that God is still gracious in our life and it's proclaiming what we already know to be true about him. Man, it's important. New songs are important. It, it shows the newly manifested grace that our Savior has. Not just that, though, also a Savior that maximizes his glory. This is the Savior who we've centered our worship around. A Savior that maximizes his glory. Psalm 40, verse 3 says this, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So God does this. He puts a new song in our mouth. It's implying that we're singing that song. And look at the result. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. When we worship when our worship is centered around this incredible Savior, and it's not centered around a style, it attracts people. Did you know that? It attracts other people to want to worship this God because the worship's no longer focused on really what's going on here on stage as much as it's focused on what's going on right here. And people can see that. And this is, this is an incredible thing because ultimately in, Psalm, in Philippians 2, 4 through 11, we see this, that God's going to ultimately get maximum glory. He's already gotten it. And every knee will bow. Even Satan, even sinners, everyone's going uh, to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that day is coming. But what's amazing in that is we get the opportunity now to join him in maximizing his glory when we worship and when we worship and it's worthy, and it's not based around a style. So that's, that's the first thing to look at. Look at where worship begins, both types. Worthless worship begins in a self-focused mind. Worthless worship begins in a self-focused mind. Worship doesn't begin on the corporate level. 
It's, it, we, we're worshiping corporately, but it doesn't begin there. It begins on the personal level. In Matthew 23, Jesus talks about those who have this self-focused type of mindset, okay? This self-focused mind, and we know them as the Pharisees. Look at what Jesus says. I'm going to kind of go through this quick. For they preach, but they do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These are precious spices. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of what? They are full of greed and self-indulgence. This, this passage defines a person that has clearly made life about them. Not just their life. They've made the worship about them. And this is the question those kind of people ask. Are the external conditions of my environment right for me to worship? Is everything externally right for me to be able to worship? Is all that environment set in place? Now notice the word right here is in uh, 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 quotation. The reason why is because this is not some kind of objective right. This is our subjective right. It's, is it right for me? It goes back to the volume. Is that just right for me? This is the, the, the focus of a self focused mind. And it's easy to get into this in our consumer-driven generation, isn't it? I mean, I go to Chick-fil-A. By the way, I love Chick-fil-A. It's my favorite place in Shelby to eat. I go to Chick-fil-A, and I get the same thing every time. A number five, eight-pack, supersized, with unsweet tea to drink. But it's not, it doesn't just stop there, okay? I get a fork for the nuggets. Who gets a fork for nuggets? I like a fork for nuggets. I get a fork for nuggets. I get 10 packets of ketchup. And I'm not talking the little packets. I'm talking the big equals three packets. So I get 30 packets of ketchup. I use every single one of them. I get unsweet tea. They don't have the sweetener I like. So I bring my own sweetener into the store, okay? Because I have a certain kind I like. I, I want some ice, but not too much ice. And I want enough to not melt the drink, okay? I, I'm going to pay with a survey coupon, which Gary taught me about. I'm going to pay with a calendar card. And I'm going to also scan my phone for the points. So next time I come, I can do it all over again. Now, here's the thing. With that, and that's just one place, okay? With that kind of mentality, it's no wonder the temptation is so easy when we walk in the door and say to ourselves, it's about me. It's my focus. This is not the way that God designed church to function. But many times we manufacture ammunition to defend our preferences and attack the things that we're not passionate about. I've heard people say, I don't like the hymns. Well, why don't you like the hymns? I don't like the hymns because they're too cerebral. They're, they're, they're outdated. They're too many words. You know, it's, it's just too, too much. I, there's so many old English words I don't understand. I don't, what's a wretch? I don't, I don't know what a wretch is. And I've heard people talk about this. And I, I look at that and I think, are you kidding? Like, we just sang Amazing Grace. What, what better anthem for what God has done in our lives than Amazing Grace? I mean, what an incredible song to sing. And then I, I want to think, have, have they read the Psalms? I mean, the Psalms are rich. They're made to be songs. They're rich with words and rich with deep theology about who Christ is or who God is. But, but, but you hear that a lot. You hear, oh, that's outdated. 
Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the worship songs that you don't like. I, here's what I've heard about worship songs. They're too emotional. I, don't even, I still don't know what that means, okay? Uh, they're too emotional. They're, 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 they're shallow. Some are. I'll agree with that. They repeat themselves way too much. Now, now we just sang a song where we said this. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome Is that really a bad thing to repeat? I mean, seriously, is that something that we should... Oh, we can only say that once. Lest we forget what happens in Revelation 4.8. The angels are there. This is heavenly worship. The angels are around there. And they are singing a very similar phrase. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And here's what's crazy. They have been doing that... Since the day they were created, and they will continue to do those same two phrases for all of eternity. And not one point in that entire time are those angels going to sit there and say, man, I'm really getting tired of these phrases. There is value. There is value in hymns. There is value in new worship songs. But we we as a church and we as in, in our personal preferences, and I've fallen into this too, We get into this thing of creating logical arguments to defend our preferences and to attack other preferences. That's the idea of a self-focused mind. I've got to hurry. Worthy worship begins in a spirit-filled heart. It begins in a spirit-filled heart. The question these folks ask are, are the internal conditions of my heart right for me to worship? They're not focused on the external. They're focused on what's going on right here. John 4, 23 through 24, Jesus says this, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Two words stand out here. The words spirit and the words truth. This are, these two words really define a right heart before God in worship. You've got the word spirit here, and it's actually lowercase if you see that, which is not referring in this passage to the Holy Spirit. It's referring to our spirit, the fact that it starts inward. But it's not just our spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 through 19 says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's both spirits. It's my spirit and it's the Holy Spirit speaking into that. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, worship is just a natural reaction. Wes won't have to say, all right, guys, let's sing. Let's get, let's, let's get excited about God. We won't have to do that. When our spirit is speaking and communicating with the Holy Spirit... Man, that, it's just natural. It just starts coming out of us. And this is what you see in Ephesians 5. It's not just spirit, though. It's also truth. This isn't our subjective truth. This isn't this idea of our preference. It's his objective truth, the word of God. We're not worshiping our idea of God. We're not worshiping a God that we've made in our image. That's idolatry. We're worshiping a God that's centered around this word. And we're saying, this is who we know God's told us who he is, and we're going to worship him based out of this. It's this idea of spirit and truth. Let's look at the last one quickly. Worthless worship results 
in separation. Worthless worship results in separation. Real quick, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, this is the last place I'm going to have you turn. Worthless worship results in separation. Separation from who? Well, first, it separates us from fellowship with God. We believe as a church that you can't, uh, as, as a believer, you're not going to lose relationship with God. But as a believer, we can be out of fellowship with God. And when we choose to wor- worship in a worthless way, we do. We break fellowship with God. And this is what you see with the people of Israel. These are God's chosen people right here in Isaiah chapter 1. And I, I want you to turn here, and I'm going to read this actually in a paraphrased version called The Message, because I want you to see these words. But you can go back and read this in, in just a little bit. But this is what God is saying to the people about their worship. Re- read this with me. Uh, Isaiah 1, it's going to come up on the screen. Why this frenzy of sacrifices, God's asking Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams, and plump grain fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. You see, this church was so focused. They were good at the external. They were good at making festivals and Sabbaths and special times and occasions to worship God. But their hearts were so far from God. They were so far from anything that was important. And what's frightening is that we could come into this place on a Sunday morning. We could gather. We could have the perfect pick and blend of songs. We could have the perfect musicians on stage. The perfect choir. The perfect praise uh, vocalist. We could have everything right, not miss a note. The media team could do everything perfect. The message could come up here, and, and this didn't happen this morning, but that person speak exactly every single word right. And yet, we could leave this place and God say, I hated that. Every, every, every Sunday afternoon, right after church, we, we go eat lunch as a family. And um, a lot of times I ask my kids this. You know, uh, did you like church this morning? What you, would you learn? Could you imagine what would happen if I asked Will, Do you like, did you like church this morning? And he looks at me and says, I hated it. Now, granted, Will would never say that because he's Mr. Positive. But if I asked Jackson, okay, uh, that question, and I said, hey, did you like church this morning? And he says, I hated it. Man, he, he'd probably get in trouble, right? That would kind of hurt my heart. But imagine if Jesus incarnate came and he was with us sitting at the dinner table. He came to church with us this morning, physically came to church. And we're there and all of a sudden we're saying, hey, Jesus, did you like worship this morning? And he looked at us and what if, what if he said, I, I hated it. And really, I really wasn't listening. Because... Your worship 
has become worthless. And this is what happened to the people of Israel. And it's so easy to happen to us when we get caught up in all the things of worship that really don't matter. It's not just worship uh, separation from God, though. Look at this next one. Separates us from fellowship with others. Isaiah 1.15 says, and this is Jesus again, or God talking again to the people of Israel. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Here's the reason why. Because you've been tearing people to pieces. And your hands are bloody. Your translation probably says you've got blood on your hands or something in that, in that idea. Their worship was so fake, so manufactured, so outward focused that they could literally neglect all these people outside of their place of worship and be blind to that and not really give a care to what's going on outside and even inside to the people that they're worshiping with. When worship is about us, we do the same thing. We leave a wake of bloody and broken relationships because our preferences matter more than our people or the people that are in our lives. And it brings about division and it alienates us from an outside lost and dying world. But look at what worthy worship can bring. Worthy worship results not in separation. It results in sanctification. This idea that we have the opportunity to have our soul sanctified. This is Theology 101, but you've got two types of sanctification. You've got positional sanctification. We talked about this earlier. Where God, in his grace and mercy for us, declares us righteous when we come to him. That's incredible. When he sees us, he sees godliness, sanctification, righteousness. And you have this positional sanctification. But you also have progressive sanctification where we have the opportunity and privilege every day of our lives until we die to live up to what God has already declared in our lives. And in our worship, this is an opportunity we have Look at how Jesus responds to them. Look at there in your passage, Isaiah 1. Look at verse 16. Jesus, God says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, they are red. They are, they are red like crimson. They shall become like Wool. When we worship this God who's worthy, this Savior who's worthy, it sanctifies us. It changes the way we think about every other thing, about relationships and about our environment. It changes the way we think about us. But it not just sanctifies our soul, it sanctifies our schedule. It sanctifies our schedule. This is not something you just accomplish on a Sunday or in a sacrifice festival. When you're reading verses 16 through 18, you're not looking at this thinking, okay, they did all of this on Sunday for one hour. They, they did all this stuff, you know, justice to the Father, let's plead the widow's cause. They did all of that on a Sunday morning for one hour. No, this is this idea that it, it changed, worthy worship changed their whole schedule. It wasn't something that just happened in one time period designated for one specific place. What you see in this passage, and you see this in Colossians 3 verses 12 through 17. Go look it up. It's there in your outline. We don't have time for it this morning. But you see a window into God's desire and design really for the church. This idea 
of sanctifying our schedule. That worship is not just contained to Sunday mornings. It's not even just contained to the 20 minutes before the message. That worship is permeated in everything that we do. Not just here on Sundays, but on Monday morning as well. We're in the process. I want to close with this. We're in the process of writing cultural values right now. or We've already written them, but we've been writing these for months. About what our church needs to be about. And number three, it says this. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is more than a song or a lyric. It's more than what we do with our mouths. It's what we do with our hearts, heads, and hands as well. When we gather, the intention of our worship is to sing his praises, celebrate what he is doing, hear and respond to God's word, and give to God's compassions. However, worship is not just an hour that we gather each week. Worship is a lifestyle in which the songs we are singing and the message we are hearing on Sunday echoes throughout the week. Worship is magnifying Jesus everywhere and all the time. And our application today is is simply this. There is no place in the human heart or the holy church for worthless worship. We were created to daily worship the only one worthy of worship, Jesus Christ. And so I want to end with this question. If you won't mind, just go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. We're not going to have an invitation this morning, but we kind of are, because here's the invitation. Will your worship be worthless or worthy? Will your worship this morning be worthless or worthy? Maybe you've, maybe you've gotten in the same place that I, I spent a lot of my years being in, caught up in preferences. Maybe this morning you just need to lay those down and say, you know what, this is a worthless battle to fight. I want, I want to center my life and my worship, not around a style, I want to center it around a Savior. I want my worship to not begin in a self-focused mind. I want it to begin in a spirit-filled heart. I don't want separation from fellowship from God or fellowship from others. I want sanctification in my soul, and I want it to last throughout the whole week. If that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you to just pray this with me. We're going to take offering uh, in the same moment, but just let's not miss this moment. God, we just pray, Lord, that God, that you would, Lord, that you would change our mindset, Lord, that our worship wouldn't be focused on ourselves. It wouldn't be focused on a preference, God. But, Lord, that we can come into this place and join hands around with others, Lord. People that have different preferences and different thoughts on on styles of music and all that. And, God, we can all sing together. God, that we can maximize your glory, Lord, by focusing on the one that's worthy, the Savior, you, Jesus Christ, who's done everything for us when we did nothing for ourselves. God, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through this message, God, and that you would get the glory for everything that's done here this morning. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.